we're the largest marketplace there is for manufacturing. And he called me and he said, nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares. Everybody wants to know what's in it for them. When you talk about your business, talk about what you're doing for customers. Not how great you are, not how big you are. Nobody cares. Welcome to the Masters of Engineering podcast. We take a look at cool products, the people who develop them, and how they do it. I'm host John Hirschtick, and I spent my entire life building CAD and other software tools to improve product development. The best part of my job is meeting the most innovative engineers and manufacturers in the world, and in this podcast, you'll get to meet them too. My guest today is a college dropout who partnered with Amazon's Jeff Bezos to build MFG.com, the first online marketplace bringing together designers and manufacturers in one place. He's an entrepreneur seeking to improve the way every machined part in the world gets made. He's currently the founder and CEO of Ziki, a company that does CNC machining, plastic molding, and additive manufacturing, serving the aerospace, defense, and many other industries. Mitch Free, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Mitch, um, let's start at the beginning. How did you get into the world of design and manufacturing? Well, you know, I always thought I wanted to be an engineer. And, and you know, like a lot of, lot of kids growing up, I, I loved to tinker with things and work on my car and try to, you know, make it faster and cooler. So I was excited after graduating high school to go to, go to engineering school. And uh, I live in Atlanta, and, I, and Southern Tech was kind of the baby Georgia Tech. So I signed up for mechanical engineering, went there, and boy, was it like a glass of cold water. I realized I had not learned how to study because high school had come so easy to me. And so halfway through, I was failing miserably. So I had decided that I was going to just withdraw and then regroup and then start again in the next semester. But during that period, I realized that one of the courses I had been taking was a machining course, and I really, really loved it. So uh, I went and checked out a trade school, and I ended up signing up at a trade school and completed a program in uh, CNC machining in the very early days. Your career took a bunch of unexpected twists and turns, right? Uh, you started refurbishing used aircraft for Northwest Airlines, and eventually you worked your way up to becoming an executive there. Then you ran your own design software business, a reseller, I believe. So tell me, when did you get the idea to start MFG.com, which was the first online marketplace matching engineers with manufacturers? 1999, two years after I had started selling CAD Key and Gibscam, I had quickly become both of them, like number one dealer. And my territory I had was from the Carolinas all the way to Texas. So I had decided to, you know, I wanted to get to know my customers. I had to offer them value over and above calling them once a year, asking them to renew their maintenance. So I was setting up uh, little sessions for people to come to a, you know, a hotel. I'd rent a little ballroom and we would do software training and talk about industry trends and things. And, and I noticed every time I would do that, my manufacturing customers would be huddled up with my design customers looking at drawings and saying, can you get me a quote? And then as I would visit customers, they would all say, hey, I've designed this new product. Do you know anyone that has some manufacturing capability? And then vice versa. And I was introducing people. After one of those meetings, I had a lunch where I introduced a design customer with a manufacturing customer. 
I was driving out of the parking lot, and I hear a commercial for LendingTree.com. Request your mortgage. Let lenders compete. And it just resonated. And I said, oh, my God, someone should do this in manufacturing. And I went home and started registering domain names, and I wrote the first version of what became MFG.com over a long weekend. You wrote it over a long weekend, a system for matching buyers of parts, designers of products with manufacturing vendors. Now, why would a designer of a new product, presumably they had manufacturers they were already working with, machine shops and tooling houses and whatever, why would a product developer need to find new manufacturers, new sources? You know, the, man, the job shop manufacturing industry in America was and still is a very highly fragmented market. It is more difficult than it appears to find people that have the right equipment, expertise, capacity, and credentials at the right moment in time. So my logic was I would allow people to upload RFQs and then specify attributes, industry certifications required, how many they needed, tightest tolerance, those types of things. And it would automatically match that to companies that uh, were looking for that kind of work. So when I built it, Honestly, I thought it was a value add to my reseller business. It was going to keep my CAD customers happy. And then people that were not my CAD customers started asking me if they could join the marketplace. They already had CAD software. So I said, well, how about $1,000? People start sending me checks. So then I realized I had a business. That's awesome. I love I love your story about it. You also, I remember you telling me how you self-funded it. And you told me once something like, if you wanted to buy a conference room table, you had to sell a new subscription. Yeah, if you wanted to buy exactly a chair, right. sell a new subscription. That's exactly right. because of the way I parlayed into it. It just started happening, and, and I didn't. I didn't write a business plan. I didn't research the market. I didn't go check for competition. I just jumped off, and I didn't have any database skills. So that first version I wrote using Perl and a flat file database, and then people started using it. So they would sign up and they put a comma in their company name, comma Inc. You know what that does? That throws off every field, right? I spent my whole day opening that notepad, remove the comma, close it, remove the comma, close it. So then I realized I had to hire a, a, a DBA. Then I had to hire some other programmers. And I, A, I didn't know how to raise money. And B, I didn't have time because I was out of business well, to run. You didn't, you didn't need to know how to raise money because the money raised you in a sense, right? So tell me the story. You're at the office one day and what happened? You get a call from... Jeff Bezos, is that right? Yeah, so it was probably five, six years in. Uh, the business growing like crazy, but tough years personally, financially, because I'm putting everything into the business. Because that was a point in time where you had to buy your own servers, your own backup devices. Uh, yes. You had to have redundancy, your firewalls. There, it wasn't as easy to start a web business as it is today, right? So you're you're plowing money back into the company. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cashing in my 401k. I mortgaged the house. Oh, my eight, gosh. Eight credit cards mortgaged to the hilt. About 2004, the business finally turned uh, turned profitable, and that was really nice. A year and a half later or so, I get a call at the office uh, from a guy that says, hey, uh, I'm calling on behalf of Jeff Bezos. He's the founder. of I know who he is. He goes, he is really interested in meeting you. Are you going to be in Seattle anytime soon? And I'm like, as a matter of fact, I think I am. And uh, so, so I found a reason to go to Seattle. And, and by the way, at this point in time, I was already in the process of selling the company to a public company. And so I already had a, a deal in the works to sell the company. So it was, 
Interesting. And so I went when I went to Seattle to meet Jeff, I, I didn't know what he wanted. And I remember showing up in the lobby at Amazon, and I just said, hey, I'm here to see Jeff Bezos. And the, they were like, uh, do you have an appointment? And there was a moment where I thought maybe I was being punked. Then I go up and have uh, to a conference room. Jeff comes in, and he just starts to pepper me. And he says, I'm fascinated by your business. And tell me the story. And how did this come about? And how did you know how to do it? And where did your background come from? And uh, we went through an hour of him just peppering me with just question after question after question. And I thought, man, he, maybe he wants to knock off the business, but why would he want to get in this business? So I go back to my hotel afterwards thinking, what the heck just happened? And this woman called me that worked for Jeff and said, uh, Jeff really likes you and wants to be in business with you. And he asked me to send you a term sheet. Did you guys discuss terms? And I'm like, not at all. And so she said, well, let me figure out what he's thinking. She calls me back and said, uh, Jeff said, you know, he wants to, you know, be a minority partner and be in business with you and for us to work out the details. So, and, and I said, that's very flattering, but I'm in the process of selling the business and I'm just not, you know, not good timing. And, and uh, but that's flattering. So she tells him, she calls me back, said he said to make an offer anyway. <laughs> so I let her speak with my CFO. They went through the numbers. They made an offer. It was very generous. I said, thank you very much, but I have a commitment. I'm already in the process of selling the business. Jeff calls me and says, I've cleared my calendar. Let's talk about this. Why do you want to sell the business? <laughs> I said, well, I haven't got a lot of money because I put everything I have into building this business. So what I'm selling it for is a lot of money to me. And he says, we'll take care of that. We'll make sure you got enough money. But this business is, is in its infancy. You'd be crazy to sell it now. And he said, so we, we can work out you taking some cash off the table. What's next? And I said, well, my employees, they all know that this deal is going to close soon. They're going to cash in their stock options. And he says, we'll take care of the employees. Don't worry about that. What's next? And we kind of drove down all the spikes. And I said, well, I made a commitment to sell the business. And he said, those things will pass. And, and uh we, uh, we ended up striking a deal, and, uh, and I'll just tell you, he, for my employees, he chipped in $2 million that he got no stock for just for me to hand out his bonuses to the 30-something employees I had at the time. What a great guy. I mean, he just uh, – he was in it because he believed in, in, in the mission. He wasn't necessarily doing it as a, you know, as a shrewd financial move. That's a, a great story. You know, people read about Jeff Bezos, but to hear about him in this situation, it's really He's a great really guy. We, we had quarterly dinners for quite a few years, and uh, I'd bring problems to him or challenges and say, present them out and say, what do you think? And he goes, what's your instinct say? And I tell him, and he goes, that's, that sounds right to me. That's why I invested in you, because you're the one that knows the space. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> that's a good rule about did you learn anything from Jeff Bezos about product development or manufacturing? Yeah, you know, there were a number of things that I learned. There, there are a couple of things I think that stick in my mind. And one is around product development. The other is around branding. So the, the first one was around product development is lots of stuff can happen on the back end but be extremely careful on the front end. And he would tell me stories about if you look at the early days of Amazon, user interface, user experience, and you look at it today, it has been such tiny calculated incremental improvements that no one noticed. 
There was never a significant user experience change where someone had to go figure out, I don't know where something is. And so he was a big believer in if you're going to continually change the UX, you do it in these tiny little pieces that no one ever notices. And all of a sudden, there's a totally different experience. And, and then on the, on the branding side, I remember, or marketing side, I remember putting out a press release once talking about, we're the largest marketplace there is for manufacturing. And he called me and he said, nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares. Everybody wants to know what's in it for them. When you talk about your business, talk about what you're doing for customers, not how great you are, not how big you are. Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought, well, that was a good sobering lesson for me. I went back and read some of the stuff we had put out about how great we are. And I realized, well, he had an interesting point. Nobody really cares. They just want to know, what am I doing for them? What's their value prop? So you keep building that business of matching parts manufacturers with, with des- designers. But then something happens and you decide to leave and start some new ventures. Can you tell us what caused you to get a vision again for new ventures? Yeah, so in 20, late 2012, to early 2013, um, I had turned 50, did my physical, and found out I had colon cancer. You know, boy, that was a shock. I wasn't expecting that at all. I was in great health. And so I, I went through some surgeries and got that taken care of. And luckily, I caught it early, so I'm a big advocate of getting your checkups. But during that recovery period of about three months, I realized that what I was doing at MFG.com had been a long 13 years. And it was time for me to do something different and time for the company to probably get some fresh ideas and fresh leadership. So, so I uh, spoke to the board and said, I, I don't know what yet, but I think I want to do something different. And so I took about six months and was thinking about that, researching different things, looking at software as a service business, looking at other twists. And in the meantime, I just thought I was going to buy a CNC machining center and play around, do some hobby, make some parts. And I thought if I get my hands dirty and make some parts again, it'll be fun. I'll reconnect. And maybe by doing that, I'm going to spot an opportunity to create a technology or to solve a need. Well, people started asking me, hey, you know, can you make this part for me in your machining center? And um, I, I did. And then it just started parlaying. So there was one fateful thing, I think, that changed the course of me looking for something. This customer that I had 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 a good relationship from the MFG days, he said, hey, I heard you got a machining center. And he's like, I got a part if you're interested. And it was a prototype for landing gear for a military jet. And, it, and he said, it's made out of, out of ferrium M54. I had never heard of that material before. I looked at it, and uh, he said, give me a price. I said, $8,000. Well, boy, was I naive because I hadn't been in the business for a while. So when I went to buy that material, it cost me more. And then I realized this is the, one of the toughest steels ever made. So you don't just machine it with the standard cutters and speeds and feeds. I spent about $30,000 to make that $8,000 part. But I did it because I had committed and it was a challenge. And so I shipped it to him and he's like, wow, that's incredible that you, got, you did that, you know? So you finished that first part, the $8,000 part that cost you $30,000 to make. You said you had to solve a lot of problems to make that part. What do you mean by that? What were the problems in machining this metal? Oh, it was the, the material was so tough. That, you know, your normal cutters, carbide end mills, inserted cutters, they were melting on this material. When you're machining something, it really comes down to about three variables. RPM of the cutter, 
the depth of the cut and the rate at which you're feeding it. And so, and then, you, of course, you've got the variables on the cutter, what it's made out of, if it's high-speed steel or carbide or diamond, and then there's coatings. And so, it really just came down to doing test cuts on a small piece with just changing RPMs and feed rates and angles of attack and different cutter materials until I finally figured out what the right parameters were. So, I, I burned through a lot of tooling getting that part right. It sounds like this was super hard. It cost you 22,000 bucks <laughs> yeah. in learning, but you were drawn to it instead of being put off by and say, oh, forget this. You said, hey, I want more. I've and never been one to run away from a challenge. It's and really, you're like attracted <laughs> to the challenge yeah. of it. And so what happened next? So, so that's interesting. I, I think that part was sort of a defining moment where I was sort of looking for a um, software as a service or some other business to, to solve within manufacturing, uh, a few things happened that sent me off the path of actually building a manufacturing business. And, you know, fate, uh, fate or luck as you, would, as you would have it, a couple of days after shipping that part and my customer getting it and being happy with it, I, I received a call from a company that uh, you know, one of the major space companies that, that you know, that builds rockets. And uh, they said, hey, we hear that you know how to machine ferrium M54. And I'm like, exactly, I do. And they, and I'm like, well, how do you know that? And they said, our salesman that sells that material has been trying to sell us and get us to use it. But we told him no one knew how to machine it. And he said, oh, we know this guy in Atlanta that knows how. And so the salesman selling the Ferrium M54 gave my name to, to a space company, and uh, they became a customer, started placing orders. And then the next thing you know, I bought another machining center, and I was in the machining business. That's so cool. Now, uh, and that business is Ziki, right? That business is Ziki, Z-Y-C-I, which actually means nothing. I just had bought a lot of domain names through the years, and in the start of it, I still wasn't sure what it was going to become. So I didn't want to use a name like precision machining or something. I just wanted to use something that no matter where I morphed, I could probably still make the name work. That's so cool. And so you so you get started with Ziki and besides machining hard, you know, hard to machine parts, is there anything else that sets Ziki apart in the market? You know, there's a there's a zillion machine shops, an increasingly number of online people, but you're different. What what other differences are there? You know, that's, that's a great question. And, and, and once I got into the business, I thought about, you know, what's going to make us different? Because anybody can go buy machines. Anybody can develop technical skills. And, and, and I think where, where we've really differentiated ourselves really is in the customer experience. It's with speed, the ability to get things done quick, to communicate, a lot of the folks that are in the machining business, that's been their whole life. If they haven't had the opportunity and been fortunate to see some of the things that I've seen and done and learned from other businesses. So I've sort of taken uh, an amalgamation of those experiences and applied that to Ziki. And it seemed to have resonated really well with business processes, customer experience. We're a pure digital workflow, which allows us to move quick. And we're not afraid of challenges. We make stuff for rockets, airplanes, satellites, you name it, the brand name, customer list. And um, it's a fantastic, fun business. I, I, I love the fact that um, we can be nimble 
uh, that I, I own 100%. I don't have partners or I don't even have a board of directors. We can make decisions. Very wait, wait, wait. What if, what if Jeff Bezos hears this podcast <laughs> and he calls you and offers you investment? Are you going to take it again? No. I, I'm, I'm turning him down. I'm turning him okay, down. Okay. I, am, I am uh, very happy with uh, with the way this business is is going and love the nimbleness because you know having investors and great partners is awesome but it does put up a little bit of a, of a roadblock from time to time to have to get consensus and maybe that's good it keeps you from making stupid decisions but one of the things I like with, with Ziki is it's very easy to do the right thing for the customer without having to run that by anyone or to make an investment or buy a piece of equipment to scale up or a new something that we need to solve a customer's issue. And so uh, we're extremely responsive. Well, uh, Mitch, now besides your full-time work with Ziki, you also are on the advisory board of Hermes, which I understand is making the is trying to make the world's fastest commercial aircraft. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. What a great group of smart guys. And, and these guys were my, were my customer at Ziki at another customer. They worked for a, a company that uh, building rockets. And uh, they decided to, they had this uh, idea to build a, you know, a very, very fast uh, aircraft that will fly at um, supersonic speeds and left their, their company and formed a company in their scrappy, scrappy group with a thesis that really works. And, and and I think some of the things that they're leveraging is what they talk about, stories you hear about the iPhone and things, that all the components were commercially available. It took someone to assemble them. And it's sort of the same thing with this aircraft. The technology is out there. The technology exists. It really becomes an assembly and integration play. Oh, wait a second, Mitch. As I understand it, this is, is this a Mach 5 mm-hmm. airplane? Yes. So... I want to make that really clear. We're talking about five times the speed of sound yes. in a commercial plane, one that like mm-hmm. regular folks could fly yeah. in, yeah. Uh, presumably expensively, but could fly yeah, in. Sure. And you're saying the technology is like off the shelf. Like I could, if I hunted around the web or or asked Ziki to make a few parts, we anyone could make one of these. I can't quite believe that. <laughs> yeah, as I mean, an I, mean well, I guess what so. I'm saying is engines engines yeah. are available, mm-hmm. afterburners are available. You mean you could, they they can buy the engine as a as a subsystem? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You don't, you don't this. right. You don't have to go design Amazing. and build an engine. Amazing. So uh, so uh, it's a, you know you got of course you got to design the airframe and and yeah. a lot of integrate in, the all the integration stuff, but the major components are, e- exist. It's really an incredible vision. When are we going to be able to fly at Mach five in a Hermes? Well, plane? I think it's going to be a while. I think this I think there's going to be probably drone versions and then maybe some, you know cargo or military versions and then it, then we'll get to the uh, to, and, and you know there's a there's a lot of uh, rules that have to be worked out as well meaning you can't fly uh, above the speed of sound over land in the US so you can really uh. so you can really take off from New York going to London but once you're out over the ocean you can you know go up to Mach 5 but you got to slow down over land uh, so, so I think, but I think, so I think the FAA knows this is coming, and they're working on some proposed rule changes, and how to handle it. Uh, but I think, you know, as a general population, I don't know that we're ready for sonic booms happening all day long. No, I don't. I don't think we are. But it, it <laughs> sure, but but people are always ready for going places faster. They Whether are. you get on a Mach five jet 
for transportation or you're getting your parts made faster with great service from Ziki or you're using state-of-the-art tools for design. Everyone wants, everyone wants to move faster in today's world. And I have to imagine I know where the parts, where some of the parts that are going to be on the Hermes, I know where those are going to get made. Absolutely. Over at Ziki. Uh, yeah. Well, can you tell me, you've, we've talked about some of your successes in your career, but can you tell me about any uh, big failure or setback hmm. that you've had and what you might have learned from it? You know, I, I really never think there's anything such as a failure unless you stop trying. And I've always never quit trying. So I, I've certainly had, uh, you know, challenging, challenging moments. Um, so when, at the, the, my first job out of trade school, I, I went to work at a, at a machining business that um, had just bought a number of CNC machines. And, and I was kind of 19 years old. And I had this real talent for CNC and CAD CAM. We were doing these really complex parts. And uh, there were a lot of older people working in the shop. And, um, man, I was, I, was, I was really good. I was really good. And then one day the owner asked me to go to lunch. And we, he took me out to lunch. And he said, man, you're probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Thank you. He said, but nobody in the shop wants that. Would, would, would go out and have a beer with you? And I'm like, what? He said, because you're so intent on making sure they all know how good you are. He said, I'm telling you this because I care about you and I see your future. He said, if you can learn to do what you do with humility, you're going to go a long way in life. If you continue to make sure you want everybody knows how good you are, you're going to be a great whatever you decide to be, but you're going to be lonely. It was like a kick in the gut for me. It was like a kick in the gut, but probably one of the, you know, it was a turning point in my life. I went home that day and I started buying books, listening to cassette tapes at the time of how to develop people skills, uh, emotional intelligence. I went to the Dale Carnegie course and it really changed my life, that one conversation. And thank God someone was bold enough to have it with me. Mitch, I want to uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate the fascinating stories you've shared, and hopefully people have gotten a taste for some of the cool products that you've been a part of, uh, so many of them, and how you do it, and the processes, and how they're evolving, and your spirit as an entrepreneur. And most of all, it's amazing to see someone who started as a college dropout all those <laughs> years ago, and yet you sound today sitting here like you still have as much passion as ever since in the many years I've known you in the many years of your career for building building cool products and cool parts and just keep going. And please keep going for all of us. We sure appreciate it. Well, thank you, John, and, and uh, vice versa. Thank you very much, Mitch. And thank you for listening today to Masters of Engineering. Uh, we'll be back with more episodes, cool products, people who develop them and how they do it.